Well, hello, family. Glory and honor and power and dominion belong to the Lord. Amen. Good. Uh, grab your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're walking through the greatest sermon Jesus uh, ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and uh, this is Jesus' vision for uh, human flourishing. For all that, that walk in this way, that, that say, I'm going to live this way. And today, uh, we're going to look at the next three Beatitudes that summarize what this life with Jesus uh, looks like. And I'm going to be preaching from verses 6 through 8, but we're going to start reading at, uh, I think, verse 1 or 2. All right, just to give us some context, we're going to start at the beginning. All right, please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Thus is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us like a father loves his children. And Lord, uh, today we just want to remember those that uh, aren't with us and those that are dealing with uh, difficulties and struggles. Lord, there's so many people uh, sick and kind of banged up. Lord, we want to just pray for our sister Bethany um, as she's walking through the Valley of the shadow of death uh, with her uncle passing. Pray that you would be a source of ever-present comfort to her, to her mom, and that the real presence of Jesus would be in their house um, as they come in this week and make plans. Uh, Lord, we remember today Jane as she's recovering from her stroke. Lord, we pray for healing in her brain, in her synapses, in the uh, neurotransmitters and the nervous system that you'd realign that and wake up other parts of her brain so that she can be restored to health and be with her. Lord, you hear her. You hear the cries of her heart. So let her know she's heard and seen. Lord, we pray for the dailies who are sick and that you'd bring them back to us soon. Be with them, comfort them, and all, Lord, that need your comfort and need to know you love them today. Would you please just grant that to them? And Lord, we thank you for your kingdom, this beautiful, beautiful kingdom that is coming. And it's even now broken in to this world. Jesus, would you feed us? We're hungry. Amen. Uh, in 1967, during the time of segregation in uh, our country, jazz artist Louis Armstrong recorded the song, What a Wonderful World, and uh, help us grasp the, the, the real feeling of that song. I'm going to have the musicians come and, and sing that song with us. I'm going to read one of the some of the words, too. <clears throat> I see trees of green, red roses too, 
I see the moon for me and for you and I think to myself what a wonderful world I see skies of blue and clouds of white the bright blessed day and the dark scarce sacred night and I think to myself oh what a wonderful world the colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky are also on the people faces people going by I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world Yes, I think to myself What a wonderful world Oh yeah <laughs> Oh, that's great. I, I want to highlight this this verse of Bridge. He sings these song these words. The colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky are also on the faces of the people going by. I see friends shaking hands, saying, How do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. In this famous song, Armstrong invites us to imagine a world. Have you guys figured out yet that the Bible really wants us to imagine? Imagine is not the same as pretend. And he wants us, this song, to imagine the world not the way it currently is, but the way it should be. The right way. He's having us imagine a world where people of diverse ethnicities, the song uses the phrase, colors of the rainbow are on the people's faces going by. A world where people of diverse ethnicities dwell together in peace. A world where People see each other as friends going by instead of enemies. You know? It's a, it's a wonderful world where people greet and they treat others the right way. Which is a form of saying, I love you. See, in this world where people behave 
justly to one another is a world that babies cannot just be born in, but they grow up in. He says they'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And you know why? Because of segregation. He's really making some subtle points here. What a They're going to flourish in this world. This world. What a wonderful world Louis Armstrong invites us to imagine living in. This is exactly what Jesus is doing for us in his Sermon on the Mount, brothers and sisters. Jesus is laying out his picture, his vision of a flourishing people, and he's inviting everyone to enter into it. Enter the kingdom. Now is the time to come into the kingdom. In these next three Beatitudes, Jesus' invitation to us is this. Everyone. He's on a mountain, right? Everyone. Come experience the life of flourishing by living justly as I define it in my kingdom. Come everyone and experience the life of flourishing by living justly as I define it in my kingdom. That's the invitation. And so there's three parts to this invitation of living justly that we're going to look at here today. And the first is those that live with a constant ache to do the will of God are flourishing. Okay? It's here in verse 6. He says, blessed, and we learned uh, the last couple of weeks that that word is better translated flourishing. Makarios, right? Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For this reason, they shall be satisfied. Jesus knows that what what all great philosophers know about humanity, about human beings, regardless of what we think, regardless of what we say our beliefs are, regardless of what we say our values are, We actually live from whatever we desire the most. As philosopher James K.A. Smith says, we are what we love. We will ultimately walk towards whatever we love the most. and Whatever we want the most at any given moment of any given day. You're doing that or you're abstaining from doing that because you think that's going to be the best life for you or lead to the best life for you. That at any given moment, our heart desire and crave all kinds of things. Power. Money. Sex. Security. Honor and respect from people. And those are just kind of the big categories. Jesus uses the words hunger and thirst, which are perfect words to describe our desires for those things, right? Like it's a per- those are perfect words to describe what's actually going on inside of a be- uh, us as human beings. Well, I mean, think about it. When we are hungry, we feel that at a really deep visceral level. Amen? We do. Like when we're thirsty, I mean like really when you're thirsty, we feel that in a very intense way. In fact, it's so intense you just can't ignore it, right? You can't think about anything else when you're really hungry or really thirsty. There's often a literal ache inside of our body that, that commandeers all of our other thoughts and thought processes when? Until that's satisfied. 
Right? I mean, you ever been hangry? You know what I'm saying? Like, you're so hungry, you're angry? I mean, there's a reason for that. These are the perfect words Jesus is using to describe what's going on here. Those cravings literally direct our behavior until we satisfy them. Jesus is inviting you and I, listen now, to trade our current appetites. Not for no appetites, but for new appetites. He knows we're craving beans. So we say, train him for some better ones. I mean, think about it. Who has ever had enough money to satisfy them? Right? Like, you know what? Uh, that's enough. You know what? I'll work this week for free. I mean, it's just too much. It's enough already. I don't need any more money. Never. It's never happened to anyone, right? I mean, who has ever had enough affection from a loved one? Could you just stop kissing me, please, sweetie? Like, could you just stop sitting next to me? It's like enough already. No, that never happens, right? I mean, who's ever had enough power and control that, that satisfy them? You know, no more. I don't, you know what? You do what, you do whatever you want. I don't need to be in control. No! We constantly crave these things. Why? Because we never get enough of them in the end. Even when we get them, we don't get enough of them, right? Like, when do we get to enough? That's an elusive benchmark. And Jesus knows us. And Jesus wants to aim our desires toward a place, aim it at a target, aim it at a place where they will be satisfied. Something we have not experienced much of. Isn't he good? I mean, he wants us to have better hungers and better thirst, the kind that bring flourishing instead of frustration. So the question is, what should we be hungering and thirsting after then? That's an important question, if this be true. And the answer is righteousness. Didn't see that coming, did you? Righteousness. Now, righteousness in Matthew's gospel has an ethical meaning. It doesn't mean the same thing it means with Paul's writing, like our position or our name or forensic. It has an ethical meaning. That means behavioral. Ethics means behavior, right? And we know that this is what it means because whenever Matthew uses the word righteousness, it's always in relation to something that we either do or say. It's either to our deeds or to our disposition. And so that's how we know he's defining the word that way. Righteousness is living the right way. You know, like back in the 60s and 70s, you know, that was slang, right? You're like, hey man, that's righteous, right? That just means that is right. It is, it is living the right way. It is doing the right thing. It, it, righteousness is just actions, not unjust actions. And who gets it, who defines what actions are just and which ones are unjust? Well, it's King Jesus himself. I mean, after all, this is his wonderful world, right? This is his kingdom. So he is the one, he's the definer of, of this word. So Jesus acts and he speaks and he thinks justly because, get this, it doesn't come from some definition outside of Jesus. It comes from Jesus himself. It comes from his very character. Okay, that 
is what we should deeply desire to see in our own life and also in our society. More of the character of Christ manifested, visibly seen and experienced. That's what you should be craving and I should be desiring. Now let me just pause and let me ask this question. And this isn't like any kind of like a guilty question or gotcha questions. I know some pastors love to do this. This is just more like an introspective. This is like a learning thing, okay? What have you found yourself consistently craving more of recently? Like the last week or two. Like no judgment. I'm just saying like what what would that be? What have you found yourself craving more of or desiring more and more of the last week or two weeks? Is it more freedom? Is it uh, more control over certain circumstances or people? Is it more praise from others? Is it just more like maybe just uh, things, products? I don't know. What is that? Jesus is saying to us here, I have a better longing for your heart to cultivate. Jesus is not about saying no desires because that can't happen in in human beings. He's just saying better desires. Here it is. He's saying hunger for my righteous disposition to be formed in your being and thirst for my righteous deeds to be demonstrated in the people going by around you. Ache for the ability to think React, feel, speak like me in this world. That's the desire he says he wants us to cultivate. That kind of hunger is the way. It is the path to a flourishing life. Why? Because those hungers will be satisfied. I mean, are are you guys, like, don't you get tired of, like, hungering for things that you just don't satisfy you? And Jesus is like, I'm giving you a freebie, okay? Like, hunger for this, and you will get it. That is winning. That is flourishing, right? That's not false advertising. That's truth in advertisement. It's great. You're not going to be frustrated in the end. You know, someone might say, yeah, well, but we can't perfectly hunger and we can't perfectly thirst for Christ's character to be formed in us. And we'll never see his righteousness fully done in our society until he returns. So why bother cultivating this hunger in our hearts? And I've heard people tell me that. And so let me respond to that. You're absolutely right. You're right. We will never live. We'll never respond, speak, and desire in full accordance with the character of Jesus in this life. It won't happen. You're right. But here's my question. So what? Like, you're right, and it's entirely irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. Just imagine this for a second. Imagine the righteous character of Jesus being formed in all of us 15% more 
than it was formed in this last year. Just 15% more than last year. Right? Wouldn't that have great benefit to you? Wouldn't that have great benefit to those in your family and those in your neighborhood and those in your workplace and school? And that's a really low percentage. Like, I'm lowballing it. I'm assuming Jesus won't do much, okay? 15%. That's going to have a significant impact, positive impact. Amen? Somebody say amen. Well, let me, let me put it this way. Maybe this will help. Let, let, me get, let me say this. If you were to receive a 15% pay increase right now, in addition to what you already make, would that have a noticeable impact on your life? Yes. Yes. You would notice 15% increase in your paycheck. Uh, we could put it this way. What if your grocery bill every month was slashed by 15% for 12 months in a row? Would, do you think that would have a noticeable impact on your family's budget? Yes, absolutely. So here's my point. Imagine hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people in society becoming just 15% more like Jesus. Not fully, not completely, but 15% more. All right, maybe 20%. Isn't that a world worth living in? Isn't that a world worth longing for and aching for and say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth? Which we'll get to that when we get to the Lord's Prayer. Absolutely. Especially when you know that's going to happen and it's going to be a satisfied hunger. Jesus, listen, is not inviting you and I to thirst and long for something that we will not experience until after we die. You've got to get that out of your mind. He's inviting us to something that has broken in now. We're going to experience satisfaction of these hungers and thirsts in part now. And yes, fully when he returns. And this is why you and I are no fool for craving to act, think, and love more like him in this world. Even though we have to wait until the new creation to fully experience it. You are flourishing, in other words, when you hunger like this. And when your soul is parched like this. The second part of this living justly goes like this. Those that show mercy to wrongdoers are flourishing. Those that show mercy to wrongdoers are flourishing. It's here in the text. Verse 7, Jesus says, flourishing are the merciful. And he gives his reason. For this reason, they shall receive Mercy. Now, so far, Jesus has told us that doing justice, now this is by his definition, and his definition is the one that we're going to adopt. So far, he's told us that doing justice means doing the right things as defined by his character, right? Now, this verse, he further refines his definition and his vision of justice under his rule. His loving lordship. Doing what is right is tempered with doing what is merciful. Even as God is both righteous and merciful, and there is no contradiction. So here's something really interesting about human nature. 
when somebody wrongs us, we all lobby for justice, don't we? We all lobby for righteousness to be done. Righteousness is a done thing, a doing thing, right? But when we are found to be the wrongdoer, turns out we all need mercy. We all campaign for mercy, don't we? Everybody I've ever met does that. See, we do not really feel how radical this particular teaching of Jesus is right now. The very notion of showing mercy to, get this, wrongdoers, not good people, wrongdoers, has no precedent in human history before Christianity. One person who understood this very well was the atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. Historian Tom Arnold, uh, uh, an agnostic himself, he said this about Nietzsche. He said that Nietzsche believed that, quote, concern for the lowly and the suffering, far from serving the cause of justice, was a form of poison. Nietzsche, more radically than many a theologian, had penetrated to the very heart of everything that was most shocking about the Christian faith. And then he quotes Nietzsche in part. Nietzsche would say, to devise something which could even approach the seductive, intoxicating, anesthetizing, and corrupting power of that symbol of the so-called Holy Cross undertaken for the salvation of mankind? And he can't even finish his question. It's so revolting to him. In other words, Nietzsche is saying that, the, that Christians or Christianity, Christians, unlike any other people group, shape their behavior around a cross and say that's good for people. And he didn't get that. A God who willingly dies to save the undeserving, a God who dies to save the criminal and the offensive and the wrongdoer, instead of crushing the life out of them, which is what they deserve, in his mind was a notion that would poison the society if it, ca if it caught on. And it did catch on. See, it's the very opposite of the survival of the fittest and the opposite of flourishing in his mind. You want to keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger, not keeping the weaker and the problem people around. In other words, mercy is the most shocking thing about Christianity, about the gospel. We can, I, I'm trying to bring that up to our minds because we can't let that get lost on us. That's not a common value across the world. I mean, the way that the world of, of human civilization for millennia is the way you keep your society around, the way you keep your society flourishing and intact is to be merciless to all wrongdoers. Everyone who breaks the law. You show them the full extent of the law without mercy. Those that undermine your society. Those that would chip away at your society. You destroy the humanity of any criminal. Go back and look at our history records of this. It is across the board. And the thinking is that that threat, that threat that I'm going to snuff your life out, you know, that's, that's the spirit of Lamech. Remember when we went through Genesis? 
that is going to keep that threat is going to keep everybody in line. That threat of really harsh punishment is going to keep everybody in so afraid they're going to be in line. Because if you show mercy to wrongdoers, this thinking goes, it will be seen as weakness, and that's just going to invite more criminals and more wrongdoers and more lawbreakers. And we can't have that. I mean, you've got to get tougher on crime. You know, last year we got tough on crime, but it got worse. Well, we've got to get really tough on crime. That's what it sounds like in the parlance of our time. We've got to get tough on crime. You've got to come down even harder on the people that offend you. They took an eye, you take two. And they won't ever do that to you again. That's this thinking in, in, in the way we talk right now. I mean, just imagine a society, an entire society of people that act without mercy. Maybe we don't have to imagine it. Dr. Anthony Bradley of King's College in New York City says this, in his book, Ending Mass Incarceration. Dr. Bradley says, quote, the data shows that when incarceration creates single-parent families and the parents remain in a cycle of prison sentences, it has lasting psychological effects on the children. According to a DOJ study, more than four in ten mothers in state prison who had minor children were living in single-parent household in the months before their mother's arrest. This means that there is a significant percentage of our population that has seen their only physically present parent taken away to prison. Close quote. what he's saying. That method of justice does not seem to be able to produce a society of flourishing people who are able to meet their own needs and also able to turn around and contribute to the needs of others. In fact, the data says it's doing exactly the opposite year upon year upon year. Let me ask a question. What would mercy look like applied to that situation? The dad is in prison and the mother, either by association or she broke some laws to take care of her kids, she's arrested and carted off to prison now. And now that now we've split up families through this, this method. What would mercy look like applied to that situation, I wonder? You know what? It might look like, I don't know, utilizing another form of punishment besides years and years of incarceration so that the children are not punished for the crimes of their mom and their dad. Jesus says, despite what it looks like, flourishing are those that show mercy to wrongdoers. Now let's be very clear. Jesus is not saying that we don't punish wrongdoers. He's not saying that. There are consequences for not living God's way. And that would be in conflict with the very verse that came right before it. Rather, what Jesus is saying that whatever righteousness looks like in a particular situation, it's always tempered with mercy. That's what he's saying. Does this make sense? In other words, Christian justice is to bring things to right. 
but it's to bring things to right in a way that's entirely shot through with mercy. It's not one or the other, it's both and. I mean, let me put it this way. The red button isn't the first button we push. Alright? It's the last button we push. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus teaches us, lo and behold, the very same thing that his little brother, James, taught. Maybe James was listening to Jesus. I don't know. Check this out. James does it in the negative, though. James 2, verse 13. He says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And here's why. It sounds like a beatitude, doesn't it? For mercy triumphs over judgment. Now what does that mean? That mercy triumphs over judgment. It means that mercy is the last word in any righteous judgment that is rendered in a situation. It's not that judgment is not there, is that when it is rendered, mercy is the final word. Mercy goes on top. Mercy trumps that. It goes on top. Jesus is telling us in the Beatitudes to live exactly the way that the prophet Micah told us to live hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years ago. Micah 6.8 says, He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. Like what the good life is. What the flourishing life is. He's shown you what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's good. It's flourishing for you and I to do justice, but to do justice in a way that shows we love mercy. And it's good for the whole society. What could possibly motivate us to show mercy to people who wrong us and hurt us and harm us and even offend us? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's knowing that God will show us mercy on the last day for all the wrong that we've done to Him. On the cross of Christ, justice and mercy kissed. They met. God's righteous wrath for all our sins was not shoved under the rug. Justice was not shoved under the rug. And God didn't say, well, I'm going to wink at all that stuff. That stuff doesn't really matter. No, God's righteous wrath was poured out on all of our offensive behaviors and thoughts and dispositions. But it was poured out on Jesus instead of us. Though Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing, He received no mercy. He received James 2.13, judgment without mercy. Why? So that we who do wrong to God all the time might receive mercy. When you really believe that you have, listen, and that you will on the day that you breathe your last breath, that you really believe you're going to receive mercy? from a holy God instead of His justice? 
on Judgment Day? How can that not translate into showing mercy to wrongdoers this day? It's our motivation, the gospel. Third part of this definition of, of justice, this Jesus justice, is those that live their life wholeheartedly are flourishing. Those that live their life wholeheartedly are flourishing. He says in verse 8, flourishing are the pure in heart. For this reason, they shall see God. Wow. Now, what does Jesus mean by pure in heart? If you guys were here, you remember a few months ago, it was around Thanksgiving time, I, I did a whole sermon just on this, pure in heart. And again, in Advent, it means to be pure in heart means that person wants one thing. I mean, they want other things, but they want one supreme thing, one ultimate thing. It means that their lives are aimed in one direction, not oscillating between two directions. The, their deepest part of their being, their heart, is pure, whole, not mixed with other competing desires, right? It means they, they don't have like a polycotton heart, okay? It's 100% cotton. It's pure. It's one thing. It's made up of one thing. That's what he's saying. In this context, Jesus is saying that the pure in heart are those people that want to fully experience being a son of God. Like, I want to fully experience that. I don't just want to read the brochure for when I get there one day. I want it now. They don't merely want the name. They don't really want like just the title, son of God, daughter of God, or the position. Rather, the one thing that they are living, living for is to think and behave and respond and love in accordance with God's will and God's character, get this, from the core of their being, from their heart. Like, it's just natural. Like, I'm not, I don't have to like work at it. I want it come out of my heart. And that's what they want. They want to want that. I mean, this is a further clarification of, of the first point here that Jesus was making. It's not merely external righteousness. See how he's clarifying this? It's not merely doing externally the, the, the right behavior, but it is the right behavior that is coming from the heart. And we're really going to unpack this when he gets later on in this, especially with the Pharisees. This is the greater righteousness that he wants for us. Okay? In other words, this person, this wholehearted person, is, is, a, is a truly flourishing person. They're not a hypocrite. Okay? There's no splitness in their life like the Pharisees exhibit. You know, the Pharisees, they were hypocrites not because they were like good on Sunday and bad on Monday. That's what we think a hypocrite is. No, they were good Sunday through Sunday. They did the right things. They said the right things. They acted righteously, but they did not do it. It did not proceed from a heart that wants to love God. The wholehearted person or the pure in heart desire above everything else to have the inner life, their inner life as a child of God match their outer life. And they're bothered when it doesn't. It bothers them when they don't, when they notice that. 
I mean, they want to see Christ changing their personhood to make them more and more like who they are, which is to say, a better version of themselves. Like, if you're a son of God or a daughter of God, that's the best version of you. So learn how to be that daughter of God or son of God, right? You're not learning how to be someone else. You're learning how to be you. They also want to see God do this great transformative work in people around them that they love and they care about. In their mom, in their sister, in their dad, in their brother. In the people in society, in their schools. They want to see more of that. And so when we talk, we'll talk more about that when we get to the Lord's Prayer, but living wholeheartedly means the greatest desire that motivates us is to look and act and speak and think like our Heavenly Father who has shown us mercy. Again, Jesus is our example of being a wholehearted Son of God. In John 5, 19, Jesus says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on His own accord, but only what He sees. See, what, what did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? The pure in heart will what? See God. But only what he sees this Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Listen, Jesus doesn't do whatever he wants with his life. That's what he's saying. He does whatever the Father wants him do, to do with his life. That's what doing righteousness really means. And God has given us a list of some specific things, but that's the general principle. It's That's what doing righteousness is. It's doing what God wants. It means simply obeying God, like a son would obey his father. But it actually means more than that. I mean, it means that, but it means more than that. Hang with me a second. Let's go back to John 4.34. This is Jesus again. Same one who's given these Beatitudes. He's, Jesus said to them, My food, my food, Sounds a lot like hungering and thirsting for righteousness to me, right? See this? My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. You guys, I, I quote this verse a lot, I feel like. But there's a reason. Jesus says that what nourishes Him and energizes Him Every day of his life, like what gets him up before the alarm clock goes off, okay, is doing the will of his father. It's doing whatever the father wants him to do that day. And so he, so here's my point. He's not only actually doing the will of God, as important that it is, he's saying something else. He's saying, I want to do whatever God wants me to do with my life. Do you understand? That's important. That is being pure in heart. When we live like that, we become more and more and more a child of God experientially, which is to say we become more and more fully us. There's, it's not like there are two separate things, guys. Here's the promise for all who live this way, the Jesus way. We will see God. 
Not we might see God. We will see God. See, when the single desire of your heart is to be a person who lives and thinks and reacts and responds and speaks words like God, you will see God changing you into that woman or into that man. We won't see that fully today. We won't see that fully tomorrow or even the next year. But one day you will see him face to face with your own eyes and not another's. And in that day, you will finally experience being the son or the daughter of God that you always wanted to be. Isn't that great? So what? So Jesus says, start practicing now. Start practicing Today, for that day. Why? So that you'll be really good at it when the day comes. You'll be like really proficient at being a son or daughter of God when that's all you're going to be the rest of your life. You won't be like, oh, how do these clothes fit and how do I walk? Like, I've been doing that. I've been walking and wearing and speaking and talking like that for 20 years. I'm ready now to enjoy it. Does this make sense? Start looking for God's beauty. Start looking for God's truth. Start looking for God's goodness to take shape in your life now. And in the shape, take shape in the lives that you come in contact with right now. You get to experience this ahead of schedule. Pray for that. Ask Him for that. He will answer it in the affirmative. So why not ask him for something you already know he's going to say yes to? Wouldn't that feel good? Wouldn't that feel flourishing and not frustrating? Ah, Jesus, he's so brilliant, isn't he? He's so good to us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the way that these truths play out in our life. Thank you for showing us the way of life. And so we ask that you would help us be people who live justly as you define it. That we'd hunger and thirst for doing the right things. The things that bring you glory. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be people that, that as we long to do what is right, that it would always have the tincture of mercy. And it always would be capped with mercy. For you have shown us great mercy. And Lord, we can only do this when you make us wholehearted people, wanting one thing. And Lord, we confess we don't want this as our one thing, but we want to want this. So would you make it so through the Holy Spirit? In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.